0: Man, we are like super glad you are with us at church. If you are a guest today here because it's baseball Sunday, thanks for hanging out with us. My name's Christian, I'm one of our pastors, and uh, we're grateful that you put on your jersey and came to hang out with Slugger and eat peanuts. And uh, I apologize in advance for those of you whose kids wore church clothes today, because I walked through the kids' area early this morning and they're all eating cotton candy and and it's just, it's everywhere. So I apologize. Um, our kids director is Heidi Bailey. Her email is hbailey.takethejourney.cc. We'll, we'll pay for your dry cleaning if, uh, if it's necessary, if they wore their Easter outfit um, a week early so we can get you ready for next week. Hey, we're in Matthew chapter 20. So every Sunday at our church, we do a little Bible study. We believe the Bible is the word of God for the people of God, that it tells us the will of God. And the purpose of God for our lives, so every Sunday we open it and we just try to learn what Jesus said. His friend Matthew wrote a book about his life, his ministry, his teaching. We're going to learn from that book today. If you didn't bring a Bible, that is no big deal. Everything I read from the Bible will be on the screen. If you have a smartphone, you can download the Bible app. It's free, really easy to follow along in the Bible, learn the Bible if you want to read it or listen to it um, that way. If you got a bulletin when you came in, it's got some notes in it. That'll um, help you either follow along or know when we're getting close to the end, regardless of what your motivation is. That'll help you um, in a couple different ways. Starting kind of a three-week journey at Journey that we're calling Secret Christian with the secret crossed out. And the goal of this two, three weeks um, is to step out of the shadows into a public faith life. Next week on Easter, I'll be preaching about two secret Christians, a guy named Joseph of Arimathea, a guy named Nicodemus who were followers of Jesus, but they didn't want anyone to know. They didn't want Jesus to tell anyone um, because it would have made their lives more difficult. And we're going to talk about how the crucifixion and resurrection changed them from secret disciples to living a life of very public faith that is written about, that we read about 2,000 years later. Um, Some of you need to take that step of going public with your faith. You are a secret disciple right now, and that's okay. Okay. Joseph of Arimathea was, Nicodemus was for probably a period of three years. But at some point, you got to step out and say, hey, like I'm with Jesus. So that's our goal this next two or three weeks. Um, Our Easter week and Easter emphasis sets up this way. This Wednesday, we will have our first Wednesday of fasting and prayer. For those of you new to church, fasting is not eating food for a set amount of time so that you can focus on spiritual things. This year, the first Wednesday of every month, we're having a daylight fast For our church, for those participating, that this week will be from 6.57 a.m. to 7.46 p.m. It's a long one. Um, so you might want to get up and have breakfast really early before the day starts. Um, and we just use every time our stomach growls to remind ourselves how hungry we are for Jesus, how much we need him. It allows us to pray a little more spiritually focused. We'll pray as a congregation from 6.30 to 7.30 here. Uh, we'll worship a little bit, have a prayer outline. We're actually going to be giving you a Seder, which is the Passover meal, a uh, prayer outline to pray through um, with you as a couple, um, as a family. Um, and, then, and then we'll be done. We have six Easter services Friday. Saturday and Sunday They're all the exact same service We're asking most of the people in our church If you can to come Friday, Saturday Or to the early one on Sunday Um, You and I both know that there are thousands of people in our community Who have not been to church yet in 2023 Who will come Easter Sunday because it's Easter Sunday. And then they won't come again until Christmas, because it's Christmas. They are all gonna come to the last two services on Sunday morning. So if you wanna invo- avoid a, like a huge crowd who doesn't know the parking lot, who doesn't know how to check their kids in and out, and, and a little bit of chaos, um, those first ones might help you. And that allows us as a church to say to those people in the community who are only planning to come on Easter, we see you, we plan for you to be here, we want you to come, we'd like you to come more than twice a year. Um, so you might be able to serve our community by doing that. But then on April 16th, we kind of, Finish. put our stamp on this secret Christian series with what we're calling a Sunday of baptism and barbecue. So after our 10.30 service, we're gonna have a huge cookout. We have three baptism tanks, one for kids, one for students, one for adults. And we're praying that dozens and dozens of people will take their public step of identifying with Jesus and say, I'm with Jesus. Secret no longer. I love Jesus and I'm with him. I'll let you know how you can do that by the end of the service if that's the next step that you need to take. Today in Matthew chapter 20, um, we begin a brand new series, and I've called today's devotional um, an uphill battle. Uh, if you study Greek mythology at all, there's a guy in Greek mythology named Sisyphus, and you might have heard of Sisyphus because he was the guy who was the king of what, what, what became a city called Corinth, who was punished by Hades in the underworld by making him push um, a big rock up a hill that, as it got to the top, would roll back down to him. That was his punishment for eternity, that he would spend his entire life pushing this rock uphill only to have it get to the top and roll back on him, and he would have to start again from the bottom. From that, our culture has created a term to describe hard things as an uphill battle. Culturally, we even talk about how tough we were because every generation says to the generation that follows it, we had it harder than you. We say things like, I had to walk to school uphill, uphill, Both ways, yeah, like coming and going, like it's all uphill. What we're saying is I'm tougher than you. Like I went through an uphill battle. My generation had it harder than your generation. Today in Matthew 20, Jesus is literally on an uphill battle, literally and figuratively to the cross in Jerusalem. And as he's on this uphill battle to the cross, he really taught his disciples three things about who he was, who he wanted them to be, and how they could see spiritually in their life like he wanted to, he defined some things. So I'm going to try to, as we walk through today's text in Matthew 20, just point out the things that Jesus was defining. I'm going to start with number one. We'll kind of read the chapter as we go along. We're going to see that Jesus was defining his spiritual mission to his disciples. He was defining, number one, the mission that he was on. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19, it says, Now Jesus was going up to, somebody say up to, He's going up to, literally, Jerusalem. On the way, he took uh, the 12 aside and he said to them, these are his 12 closest ministry associates, his disciples. Verse 18, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Now, I want to put in context a little bit of what is happening here, because this journey with Jesus was an uphill battle from the city of Jericho to the city of Jerusalem. So I'm going to throw up a map that might be easiest to see on the side screens, and it's a map that shows the three pilgrimage routes that Jews would take when they walked from Galilee to Jerusalem. The white one in the middle was the shortest. It was the fastest. It ran through Samaria, so they hardly ever took that one because Jews and Samaritans hated each other. Jesus did take that one at one point, and he talked to the Samaritan woman at the well. The green one, um, interestingly enough, because it's an ancient route, if you went to Israel today and were in Galilee and put directions in your phone to get your rental car from Galilee to Jerusalem, it would take you along the green route. Um, I don't know why that line is green. I do know the international community built what they called a green line in Israel when they divided the state of Israel from the land of Palestine, the West Bank. They called that area the green line. That green line actually very closely traces today's West Bank. And if you rent a car in Israel, they don't want you to drive it in the West Bank. So they'll have you drive all the way around the country to come into Jerusalem kind of from the Mediterranean Sea. Most of the people who were pilgrims traveling from north to south We actually drive the red route um, now on I-90, kind of through the West Bank. Uh, Most would take the red route. We know that Jesus was on the red route because he'd been doing ministry in Perea, which was on the eastern side of the Jordan River just across from Jericho. So we know that Jesus and his disciples crossed the Jordan River. They went to Jericho on the way to go to Jerusalem. Now, here's what's fascinating about this. 1,400 years earlier, a guy who had the exact same Hebrew name, a man we call Joshua, whose Hebrew name was Yeshua. Jesus' Hebrew name was Yeshua. A guy named Joshua crossed the Jordan River at the same spot, started in the same city, to do battle with the country so that the people of Israel that he was leading could have physical rest in the land of Israel. 1,400 years later, 2,000 years ago from today, Jesus would cross kind of that same path into Jericho. And he also was doing battle, but not so people could have physical rest in a geographic land, but so they could have spiritual rest in an eternal kingdom one day. So Jesus is walking this route to the cross Jericho is 1,000 feet below sea level. It's at the very northern edge of the Dead Sea, which is the lowest point on planet Earth. Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level, which means this 15-mile route was 3,500 feet of elevation gain straight uphill. If you've ever driven it, your ears will pop going up or down because of the pressure as you go up and down on this road. And Jesus and his disciples literally were on an uphill climb from the city of Jericho to the city of Jerusalem. And here's what you need to know. They were miserable. You say, of course, 15 miles straight uphill. No, they were like, they were emotionally miserable. See, this was the third and final time that Jesus predicted his death to his disciples. And this was the most specific that he had ever gotten. In Matthew 16, 21, he said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die didn't phase the disciples much. In Matthew 17:22 and 23, he reminded them, going to Jerusalem, going to die, didn't phase him a whole lot. But here he says exactly what he's going to do. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the chief priest and the teachers of the law. They're going to hand me over to the Gentiles. They're going to beat me, they're going to flog me, they're going to crucify me. I'm going to die. This got the disciples' attention because they would have known what this looked like. They would have known what this would have felt like. And I will say this, literally the emotional hope of the disciples probably quickly faded away when Jesus made the statements about who was going to conquer him. When he told his people, I'm going to be handed over to the um, chief priest and the teachers of the law, that really characterized the entire corrupt Jewish establishment of the day, When he said, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles, they knew that meant the Roman empire and his disciples had to be thinking something like, are you serious? Like we understand your messianic kingdom is different than we thought it was going to be, but it's got to take out at least one of the bad guys, right? Like we're going to go to Jerusalem and lose to the Jews and the Romans. Like who does that? And they were miserable, As a matter of fact, in John chapter 11, when we see a similar conversation happen, we know Thomas resolutely said to the disciples, I guess we should all go die. Like that was their headspace. He had told them twice, but this time it was like, we're going to lose to the Jews and the Romans. Thomas is like, I guess we should all just go die with him. Mark, giving us the exact same conversation, says they were heading up to Jerusalem. Jesus was in front. He was leading them. And the disciples were astonished while some were afraid. The word astonished in the Greek language is the Greek word thambeo. It means to be afraid to the point of being frozen. Some of them were literally being dragged up the hill because they were so afraid they could not walk on their own. Thomas thinks he's gonna die and he's sharing that with everyone. Hey, we're gonna die. Hey, we're gonna die. Like you have that friend who every time you do something risky is like, we're gonna die. Thomas was that guy. Some of the guys like couldn't even move. Like if you could just picture this little band that Jesus says is going to change the world, it would have been a pathetic looking crew walking uphill to Jerusalem. I have seen a snapshot of, I think, what we learn in Matthew chapter 20. You say, how, how is that? In 2016, I took um, an interesting crew to Israel with me. I wanna show you a picture of them. They were a unique crew of kind of elders and staff and family. The guy in the middle is one of our elders. That should tell you something about our church. The guy with his tongue out is our pastor. That should tell you maybe something more um, about our church. And here's why this was an interesting trip to Israel. We'd gone to Israel three times to support our mission partners, but we had so many people from our church wanting to go. We used to rent vans and just drive ourselves around the country. I could get in a van in Israel without directions and get anywhere because I've driven the country so many times. But we had so many people wanting to go, we had to rent a big bus, we had to contact a tour agency, like we had to do it with them. So we were there interviewing like tour guides and bus companies and kind of walking around. So I asked a real small group of companies, I said, hey, do you want to come to Israel with me? It may may be awful, um, but we got to go figure out how to take more people to Israel than we take now. So I had a small enough group that were like, yep, let's try to do it. I got sick the first night with food poisoning, not from Israeli food. I ate at a McDonald's 10 minutes after it was closed and it made me horribly ill for four days. All I did was puke and preach. Like literally that was it. Like on the bus, on the way there, our driver was so uncomfortable because I would just puke in a bag in a trash can behind his head the entire time. And then I'd wipe my mouth out and get my Bible. And then I'd go teach. And then I'd puke for the next three or four days. One day we were in Galilee at Caesarea Philippi and I was teaching and the temperature was nearly 110 degrees with humidity of 88%. It was miserable. It was the Middle East in July. And it was, a mis- it was a miserable physical experience. By the time we got to Jerusalem, they dropped us off at what's called the Dung Gate in Jerusalem, which is what you think it is. It was the old gate of the old city where because everything flowed downhill, the dung would wash out of the city. It was the sewer gate. But that was the closest one to the Western Wall where we wanted to go and pray, the Wailing Wall. Maybe you've heard it called. And as we started walking into the city, we were going to go to the Wailing Wall. Then we were going to kind of cut through the city and our bus was gonna pick us up on the other side of the city. As we were walking in, there's security everywhere, and there's like, there's a backpack. We don't know what it is, could be a bomb threat, so they wouldn't let anyone in the city. And we're like, what are we gonna do? Like, you gotta walk around. So instead of going through the city, we found ourselves walking around. Right, you were there, Jamie. You remember? It's awful. Like, it's hot. We found ourselves walking around the city, like Joshua, in, around Jericho, but the walls were not falling down, and I'm telling you, like, everything was uphill, it was 100 degrees, everybody was tired, no one had eaten, because our restaurant was between the Wailing Wall and the Far Gate, and, and like, we didn't even know how to contact our bus to get back to them, and at one point, I looked back, and, like, two or three people looked like they might die, a couple of the kids were crying, some I'm sure were cussing me out. Um, one was threatening divorce. The only one that was married to me. And like I looked at this, I looked at this little ragtag group, and I'm like, I'm sorry, this is awful. And I'm telling you, it was awful. When I picture Matthew chapter 20, I picture Jesus turning around, thinking, Holy cow! Thomas is like, We're gonna die. We're gonna die. We're gonna die. Others of them are like so afraid they can't walk. They're dragging each other. They're crying but they've missed the point because Jesus said, if you read all the way through Matthew 19, like I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests, teachers of the law, Romans, they're going to kill me. But then he said, on the third day, I'm going to be raised to life. They, they missed the point of the mission. This is the thing that sets Jesus and Christianity apart from every other major world religion. Jesus said, I am going to die as punishment for the sins of the world so that you can live eternally and to prove that I can give you life after I die, I'm going to go ahead and come back to life after I die, just so you will know that that is what happens. Listen, Jesus' fight was not against the Jews and the Romans. Jesus' fight was against sin and death. And he said, I'm going to defeat sin with a cross, and I'm gonna defeat death with an open tomb. And we're gonna fight things way, way bigger than the Jews and the Romans and the headaches they're causing right now, amen? Jesus is like, I'm gonna do some spiritual things to change the world. And it's gonna change you. And listen, Journey, because we know the real story, the real enemy, the real victory, because we know we're gonna talk about it at Easter, man, we can't be silent, I can't imagine that any of us would want to come to church on Easter Sunday without bringing someone we know needs the hope of Jesus in their life. Somebody right now who's hung up on the Jews or the Romans or this political party or that political party or this issue or that empire. Someone who thinks they can find peace any other way but Jesus who keeps hearing every day, we're going to lose the Jews, we're going to lose the Romans. Who needs to hear? No, no, no. There's a much bigger war than Jews and Romans. It's sin and death. And I know the guy who won that war. And you can know him too. And please bring somebody with you to our Easter services. Invite someone you know and love. Ask them to come and sit with you. Please send out a text message or two. At the very least, post something on social media that if somebody's looking for hope and a church to come to this Easter, they should come to Journey. I talk to people who say, well, Easter's kind of a family thing for us. We come together, we dress up nice, we all go have a meal together. I said, awesome, do that on Sunday. On Friday, bring the people in your life that need Jesus. That's why we have more than one service Like let's leverage who we know Jesus to be because that's the mission of Easter. It's interesting, Jesus and his disciples would head to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover and it would be the last Passover ever needed because Hebrews 7.27 said Jesus died once for everyone and no more Passovers are needed. Romans 6.10 said that when Jesus died, the sins of the world could be forgiven if they were brought to the feet of Jesus. Passover wouldn't be needed anymore. That would be the mission of Jesus. And he wanted to make really, really clear what his mission was so that his disciples could understand it. He also, we see him number two, defining what spiritual greatness looks like. We see him defining what spiritual greatness looks like. I'm gonna ask you a question that I don't want you to answer until you get a little more info about the answer. The question would be this Do you desire to be spiritually great or to be characterized by spiritual greatness? Don't answer that question yet. You need to have some more information before you answer that. Do you desire to be spiritually great? Because this Baseball Sunday, I, I thought I'd bring one of my favorite baseball stories. In the late 1880s, there was a professional baseball player by the name of Billy Sunday. He was a major league baseball player for eight years. He played for the Chicago White Stockings, and then his contract was sold to the Pittsburgh Alleghenies. He ended up his career in Philadelphia, and after his eight-year major league career, he became a Christian pastor, and in the early 1900s, he was the most well-known and impactful evangelist in all of America. Crowds would flock to hear him preach about gospel. He led tens of thousands of people to Jesus. And it's said that Billy Sunday, before he preached, would sit in a back room and he would pray this prayer, God, make me great for you. God, make me great for you. I want to challenge you to know what that prayer means before you pray it. Not that I don't want you to be great for God, but Jesus defines spiritual greatness in a way that we should understand first. Look at verse 20. It says, the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons And kneeling down, ask a favor of Jesus. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine might sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared by my Father, So let me start off here with a note that I think needs to be said for uh, for poor Aunt Salome. I think we need to give Aunt Salome a break. You're like, what'd you say, Salome what? No, like, so so Salome is a name of a woman in the Bible. And when we piece together what we know about the women at the cross of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and John, we find out that there was a woman with Mary, the mother of Jesus at the cross, who was said to be her sister, who in a different book was called Salome, which means that Salome would have been Jesus' aunt, which means James and John would have been his cousins. So she comes to Jesus, and here's why she also needs a break. Jesus, just in the last chapter, had said, I'm setting up a kingdom, you all are gonna rule with me, everyone's gonna get a throne. Like, he made a pretty big promise. Not only are we gonna rule and reign together, we're gonna have 12 thrones, everyone's gonna have a seat at the table. All she was doing is saying, hey, can you make sure your family is sitting close? So I think we need to give her a break, because sometimes we can see her as really opportunistic. And I think she's doing probably what any aunt, mother might do at a family reunion when she's like, hey, if this is going to go down this way, like, could, like, could you all sit together so like, that we could get a good picture? Like, I don't know what she's asking, but like, she's asking a big thing. So I think we got to give her a break. However, um, I don't think the boys deserve the same break. I don't think James and John should get the same break because knowing the mission of Jesus was the cross... James and John were trying to figure out how to use the cross for their own selfish interest. Like knowing what was getting ready to happen. James and John were like, okay, that's terrible, but um, how, how could we use this to help ourselves? It's hard for me to judge them because I do this too. And probably you do as well. As a matter of fact, for those of us who keep a prayer journal, I think if we looked at most of the things in our prayer journal, it's probably us trying to leverage Jesus to do things that are in our best interest. We usually pray for things that will help us and position us and serve us and make things better. So it's really hard. It's hard to judge them. Can't give them the benefit of the doubt, but it's like, I get it. And the disciples always did this. We hear in verse 24 that when the disciples found out what the brothers had asked, they were indignant that they had asked it. They weren't indignant at the question, they were just indignant that they had asked it first. Because in Mark chapter nine in Caesarea Philippi, where I had a puke fest at 110 degrees and at like 80 plus percent humidity, when Jesus told them there first he was gonna die, the first conversation was, who should be in charge after he's gone? This is the first thing the disciples thought. And then in Luke 22, it says, at the last supper, We'll end today's service by taking communion together, representing the Last Supper. At the Last Supper in Luke 22, the disciples are like, "Hey, so if this thing really goes south, who should be in charge?" Like Jesus is stepping away from the table, and they're trying to figure out which of us is going to like take over this thing. Like these disciples were continually selfishly interested. So Jesus called them out, and he said, "Listen, you guys got to stop acting like the rulers of the Gentiles now." This was just an illustration of a picture of unspiritual leadership. What he was saying is, you have to quit jockeying for position. You have to quit using God for yourself. Like, this is what the rulers of the Gentiles do. He said they rule over people. In the Greek language, the word is katakureo, And it's a word that means to press down heavily upon Jesus said, most people are trying to figure out this. What power do I have? What influence can I gain that I can use to make people serve my interest? This is how how unspiritual people think. Unspiritual people are constantly thinking, what power do I have? What influence do I have to figure out how I get what I want? That's how unspiritual people think. Now, here's what's really bad. A lot of us think that way. Like, as a matter of fact, most of us have chosen our careers and our jobs that way. A lot of us make most of our decisions in the course of a week that way. How can I take the power and influence I have and figure out how to use that for me? Jesus said, that's what the, that, like, that's what unspiritual people do. He said, you're not going to be like that. And then he said this, as disciples, you're not even going to have any earthly power or influence. But you will be able to gain spiritual power and spiritual influence by doing two things. And here's what you'll have to do. You'll have to suffer. And you'll have to be servants. So now that you know a little more. Let me ask you the question. Do you, do you desire spiritual greatness? Because Jesus told these boys. He's like. You don't even know it yet. But you are going to be spiritually great. But it's not because of your power. And it's certainly not because of your influence. You're going to end up being used greatly by God because of how you suffer and how that suffering serves the kingdom. So let me ask you again, do you want to be great spiritually if it means you have to suffer and suffering serves God's kingdom? Because those were James and John's options. And Jesus said, you actually are going to suffer. I know you'll do this. James and John were the first and the last of the suffering disciples of The original group of 12, 11 who stayed with Jesus. James was the first of the 11 disciples to be martyred. In Acts chapter 12, he was beheaded for telling people, no, Jesus really did die and raise again. At the very end of that line, after all the other disciples had died, the apostle John, they attempted to martyr him in southwestern Turkey. Church history tells us they dipped his entire body in a a cauldron of boiling oil, thinking that it would kill him. And when he came up out of the oil, he was horribly disfigured, probably no hair left on his body. It's possible he couldn't even really see anymore, but he was alive. So they exiled him to the island of Patmos where all the prisoners lived, and they let him die there. But Jesus had purpose for both of their suffering. In Acts chapter 12, when James was beheaded, his life was ended, but the church sprang out of Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, the ends of the world. His suffering produced a global movement of Christianity. And John's suffering produced the last will and testament of Jesus, a book we have in our Bible now called the book of Revelation, where Jesus said, here's the few things I want my church to know before I shut my mouth until the second coming. So God used both of their suffering mightily. Let me ask you a question. Have you allowed God to use your suffering yet? For those of you who are suffering or who have suffered, let me tell you first, I'm sorry. I don't mean to make light of it. I hurt with you and Jesus hurts with you more than you could ever know. But have you thought about using your suffering in his service yet? Last January, we had a family from Virginia come and share their story with us. Their story was this, a family of four driving home from church one Sunday night. They were hit by a drunk driver going 80 miles an hour that literally drove over the top of their car without even hitting its brakes. They should have all been dead. Four people life to four different hospitals. Their teenage daughter with a traumatic brain injury that is just... It's left her different and impaired the rest of her life. Somehow the rest of the family survived and is okay. And they go around to churches sharing their story, and it's incredible. Josh, the son who was in the backseat of that car and has survived, has written a book called Leverage Your Life that he sent me a few weeks ago just based on their story. And as I read the introduction to the book, Josh talked about how every day of his life he questioned why God would let happen to their family what happened. And he said this, I could never figure out the point of our suffering until I started sharing it. And then I knew God wanted to use it. I could never answer the question, why us, until we shared our suffering. And then it made sense. So we now give the rest of our life to tell our story of suffering so that others might be comforted. What's the suffering you're going through that you could share in a way that would change the world? James and John's suffering had purpose. Jesus' suffering had purpose. He would say in the end of verse 29, his suffering was as a ransom. It's the Greek word lutron. When you find that word in Greek literature, here's what it means. It's the redemption price paid for a slave to purchase their freedom. Jesus said, what I go through will lead to your spiritual freedom so you can connect to God and live for God. I am gonna suffer so that you can have freedom. Let me ask you a question. What if the price for your spiritual greatness is suffering? Would you still sign up for that? Some of you are actually right in the middle of that journey meaning your suffering has come. You've not even put two and two together until today and realizing the value of your spiritual story and impact is in your suffering if you can just figure out how to share it, the price that you paid in your suffering might lead to someone's spiritual freedom, spiritual hope, spiritual help, if you'll be willing to share it. That's what Jesus is teaching us about spiritual greatness. What else does he teach us? Number three is, we kind of end this message and work our way to the end. Jesus is defining for his disciples spiritual vision, how to see spiritually, Verse 29, it says, as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, you might circle those two words, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside. You might circle those four words, sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them, and he touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight, and they followed him. In verse 29, we see these two words leaving Jericho. In verse 30, we see the four words sitting by the roadside. Let me just catch up to what was happening here. Jesus and his disciples were part of a large pilgrimage on the Red Route from northern Israel Turkey, Syria, anywhere in the Northland, Jewish people making a pilgrimage for Passover. Some people say the city swelled by more than a million people coming from all over the world to be in Jerusalem for the Passover. There were tens and tens of thousands of people passing through Jericho, all of them spiritually minded. They had all cashed their paychecks They all had their offerings ready. They were all loaded with money in their pockets, goodwill in their heart. They were walking towards God, celebrating the goodness of God. This was the perfect place and time to be a beggar. You could picture the entire road from Jericho to Jerusalem lined with beggars because they knew these people were coming to worship God with money in their pockets, and this is a really easy time to get them to do the right thing. We need help, please help us. I'm sure every Passover, they sat by the same gate asking the same question, and I bet they made big time bucks for them over the course of this month of pilgrimage in and out of Jerusalem. But this time was different. In Luke and Mark, where this story is told, it says that one of the beggars, the primary speaker, a man named Bartimaeus, asked someone what's happening because he heard the noise of a crowd, and someone told him, it's Jesus. Jesus. And for him who had heard stories about Jesus, this changed everything. And all of a sudden, he had an ounce of hope because Jesus was passing by. So the word that we see in our Bible is he started shouting. The Greek word for shout is spelled K-R-A-Z-O. What English word does that look like? Crazy. Crazy, because that is the word we get the English word crazy from. It literally means to yell like an insane person. This guy was yelling like an insane person at Jesus. By the word, this word "krazo" is also the word used to describe how women sound when they have babies in the Greek language. But I didn't put that on your notes because I didn't know that that was really relevant. And I don't know that any of our moms wanna say, you sound like an insane person? I didn't say you sound like an insane person. I'm just saying in the Greek language, this is the word for what women sound like when they have babies. It's also used to describe... Shouting like a crazy person. So like th- those, just, those just go together. Um, so he's shouting, Jesus. And they're like, be quiet. So he shouts even louder. I like, mean, this guy's crazy. Here's what you need to know about spiritual vision. True spiritual vision cares a whole lot more for how people see Jesus than how they see you. This guy could care less in the moment what people thought of him. He needed Jesus. And what he needed people to understand was how much he needed Jesus, was relying on Jesus, thought of Jesus, the words Lord, son of David. Lord is a word that means master, son of David, means he thought he was the Jewish Messiah. I mean, the theology and the surrender in this statement, this guy shouting like crazy, Jesus, you can be my master. I believe you're the Messiah. Like he's shouting like, he cares less what people think of him. He cares a whole lot more that they know what he thinks of Jesus. Because he needs to get to Jesus. This series, Secret Christian, describes many people who have a time in their faith walk where they love Jesus deeply, but they are bothered by what others might think of that. So their faith is not just personal, it's private. It's private. Most people don't know you love Jesus, need Jesus, cry out to Jesus, think he's the Messiah, have let him be your master. Like they may be aware you have a faith wall. It might be where you go to church, might be where you have some Christianity in you, but they have no idea that you're crazy about Jesus. That's kind of a secret part of you right now because you're just not sure that you can let that out. This guy was not that way. It's interesting that one of the first acts that Jesus gave his church, his followers, when they became followers of Jesus was the act of baptism. Because baptism is the public shouting to the world that I love Jesus, and I don't care what anyone else thinks. Like, that is what baptism, when you go in the water, that water doesn't forgive you, it doesn't cleanse you, it doesn't save you, it doesn't sanctify you, it doesn't make you more spiritually. It is symbolic of I have died to who I used to be because I believe I can only have life in Jesus. I am Crosso for Jesus. I don't care what you think of me. I need you to know what I think of Jesus. That is what baptism symbolizes. It's a public statement that I am with Jesus. I've asked him to forgive me. I've committed my life to follow him. That's what baptism is. And some of you have not yet taken that step that way because you're unsure of what others might think about you if you do. I talked to a, a, a gal in our church named Lisa last Sunday who met me up front after the service, and she said, I've got a question about baptism. Okay, what is it? She's been in our church a long time. I feel like I should be baptized. All right, why do you feel like you should be baptized? She said, I just want to make sure. feel like I should be baptized, but I want to ask you. So, all right, why? what's the tension? And she said, I was, um, she said, baptism is supposed to be my statement to the people in my life, my family, friends, spiritual community that I am following Jesus and I want them all to know that, right? Said, yep, that's what baptism is. She said, okay, um, I was raised Catholic, so I was baptized as a baby by a priest and grateful that my mom and dad raised me to you know, have a faith and religious background, but like, I was so little, obviously, that was not me saying to the world, I follow Jesus and I don't care if anyone knows. She said, you also baptized me in Israel in the Jordan River. Yeah, I did. She said, wasn't that more symbolic, like because I was in Israel, wasn't that more like a pilgrimage thing? Like most of my spiritual community wasn't even there. And I said, yeah, like, like, yes, I would say that that baptism in the Jordan River was pretty symbolic unless you took all of your family and friends over there to make your statement. She said, I feel like I have never told the world through baptism that I'm with Jesus and I'm unashamed. Should I be baptized? And I said, I think you should. Thank you. Like, you already, you're already telling me what God has told you. Yes. Yeah, you need to make that statement. Some of you have similar stories in some form or fashion. Whether your baptism being something your parents chose for you, your baptism being something between the ages of eight and 10, your church made you do so that you could be a member of their church. Like your baptism was not your statement to the world. I'm Crazo for Jesus. Like crazy for Cocoa Puffs, but for Jesus. Like like I'm, I'm, I'm with him and I want everyone to know. I didn't care what you think about me. I just need you to know what I think about Jesus. That's what April 16th is for. To give all of you who have not yet taken that step an opportunity to step into public and say, I love Jesus and I don't care if anybody knows. In the seat pocket in front of you, unless it's gone, because we had so many people in the 830 that grabbed them, there's a little card with a red top on it. This is baptism card. We are going to make it, we believe, easier and a little more biblical for people to get baptized on April 16th after church. Because we're not going to make you tell your whole story in front of a thousand people and to a worldwide audience through the internet. We're going to ask people to talk with one of our pastors, make sure that they understand that they're a follower of Jesus or one of our Next Steps team members. And then we're going to ask them two questions while they sit in the tank. Have you asked Jesus to forgive you of your sin? Trust him as your savior? Yes. Are you going to follow him the rest of your life? Yes. Then let's baptize you as a symbol of that. We're going to try to make it easy on people to say to the world, I love Jesus and I don't care who knows. If that's your next step, your son's next step, your daughter's next step, your granddaughter's next step, you need to take this card and you fill it out. Take it to the Connection Center. We actually have baptism kits ready to go. You'll give us a card. We'll give you a bag. says, here's what you need to get ready for the next two weeks. And we'll get you ready to be Crosso for Jesus. Because we believe that is the posture of somebody who's coming to Jesus. These two blind men, they asked Jesus three things actually asking one thing twice and then one other thing have mercy on us have mercy on us we want our sight that's what they said have mercy on us have mercy on us we want our sight in his mercy Jesus stopped paid attention to him saw him gave him his attention but in his compassion he restored their sight in his mercy he stopped in his compassion he healed them you say what's the difference Let me put it to you this way. These people are screaming for Jesus to pay attention to them. But they have no grounds for that request of this king coming to inaugurate his kingdom. We know Bartimaeus was Jewish. Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, Jewish names, probably born and raised in Jericho. So perhaps he'd been taught the story of Esther when he was young and and he had heard that Esther had zero grounds to gain an audience and attention from the king, but she was willing to risk her life because she knew at that moment the only thing that was going to save her life was an audience and the attention of the king. So maybe he thought, I may be risking my life to yell at King Jesus the Messiah, and, and, and I don't have any grounds for demanding an audience with him. But he said, Jesus, if you would have mercy on me, just see me. Just stop, just pay attention to me. Just acknowledge that you know me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. What he's asking is this. I know I don't have any reason right now. I have no grounds to ask for your attention, your awareness, your help. But if you are as merciful as I think you are, you will stop for me. I love these words, grace and mercy in the salvation story of scripture. Grace is a word that means you receive what you don't deserve. Mercy is a word meaning you do not receive what you do deserve. These men knew what they deserved was for King Jesus to walk right on by them because they had nothing to offer him, nothing to give them. There was nothing they could trade for what they needed. They knew what they deserved was for the God of the universe to walk right on by them. But what they needed was for the God of the universe to stop and see them, to stop and engage with them, to stop and talk with them. And journey that is the story of Easter. That a God that we have no grounds to ask to come be with us, to care for us, to see us, to acknowledge us, to die for us. Like that's the story of Easter. A God that we have no grounds to ask to stop doing his thing so that he can engage in our thing stops to engage in our thing. And he doesn't just stop and see us He allows our hearts to see him. Listen, these guys for years had had people headed to Passover, passing through Jericho, that had probably given them some coins to help with their physical needs, but no one who stopped to see them. And when Jesus stopped to see them, he not only saw the physical need he had, but he told these two men, your faith, who you see me to be, your spiritual vision, is gonna lead to you having physical vision. He healed them, and then they followed him. The story of Easter is that God sees you, he knows you, he loves you, and this week the entire world, two billion people strong, will stop and say, God stopped. He heard our cry, he showed us mercy, and he not only physically came into our life, but he spiritually opened our eyes so that we could see That's the story that we're stepping into this week. The mission of Easter, my gosh, it's so clear. Jesus' death and resurrection changed the entire world for anyone who will receive that and believe that. The story of Easter and our opportunity at Easter is so very, very clear. When you have real spiritual vision, you care far more what people think about Jesus than you do yourself, which is why you're willing to extend an invitation to someone that might say no, which is why every Christian is willing to take the step of public baptism. Because we want people to know what we think about Jesus, and we care about that far more than what they think about us. And as we look at scripture, spiritual greatness sometimes is found in the hardest areas of our life. For those of you walking through suffering, know that it is not wasted if you will share it. For those of you who've shared your suffering, thank you for your ministry. For those of us who will one day go through suffering, may God, while we're in the midst of it, reveal to us that it has purpose, even in pain. Because that is the story of Easter week. The cross has purpose. It brought a lot of pain, but it has purpose. And on the other side of the cross is a resurrection. We're gonna close our time together today by taking communion. So ushers, I want you to go ahead and grab our communion and get in your places. As we prepare to take communion, here would be the three things that I would ask you to prepare your heart for as we get ready to take communion. Listen closely. Let me say it. Communion for the church is only supposed to be taken by Christians. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, Jesus should become the savior of your heart before he becomes elements in your hands through communion. But Christians are warned not to take communion not on an empty stomach, but don't take communion on on an empty head. Like examine your faith. And if there's anything in your relationship with God that needs to be dealt with, do that before you really acknowledge the crucifixion of Jesus. Or you're basically saying, I'm living however I want. I'm just going to use the crucifixion for my own selfish interest. As communion is passed in just a moment, there'll be three questions on the screen that hopefully will prompt your heart to open just a little bit of an attitude of prayer, the first will deal with this. Where right now in your heart, where or who are you aware of that has caused you to just kind of cower in faith? It is the secret area of your faith. And what is God saying to you today about having some courage to step into that? Just be honest as you think through that over the course of 60 seconds. The second question might ask you about suffering and how you have allowed God to Use your suffering in service to him and his kingdom. The third question will have to do with people in your life that need Jesus because he's the only answer that you might pray. God will begin to work on their hearts so as you invite them to our Easter services, they'll be willing to come. I'll pray and then our ushers are gonna pass the communion. There'll be a little two-in-one packet for those of you who are brand new. We'll let everyone in the room be served and then I'll come back at the end and lead us through communion and then you get to be a part of a very special commissioning again today. As many of you know, when Russia invaded Ukraine um, last year, thousands, tens of thousands of Ukrainian people were displaced. A group of several dozen families who work with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes were in uh, the United States at a conference when war broke out, and most of them have still not returned yet. Many of them made journey their home as they came back to Kansas City. One of those couples today we will be praying over as they head back to europe not yet able to go to ukraine but as they go back to armenia and get a little closer and transfer their ministry that was in ukraine and has been brought to america back to the edge of ukraine praying that god will reunite them with family and friends and ministry so you get to be a part of a special commissioning service for a group that has become a part of journey and now we are sending back to europe as missionaries so i'll pray and then our ushers will pass the communion And then we'll pray together in three minutes. God, thank you for what you've taught us and what you've defined in Matthew 20, your mission, what spiritual greatness looks like. God, what spiritual vision looks like. Open our hearts to honest conversation with you during this time of communion and use this week to carve out some space in our heart and head where every day on this Holy Week, we think about Jesus and what he did for us. And we think about what he's called us to and how we can now serve him. Help us to process that over this next three minutes before we take communion together. In Jesus' name, amen.